Hey, welcome to the Arrogant Healthcare Marketing Bastards podcast for the week of June 13th, 2011. This is episode 107, and I'm Chris Bevelo, president of Interval. We are the healthcare marketing firm that puts on the podcast. And joining me today are co-hosts Jackie. Jackie Ritako, account coordinator. And Adam. Hey, Adam Meyer, creative director for Interval. How do do well how how you do <laughs> i do do well too <laughs> very good jackie i'm good you're good i wasn't quite sure how to respond to that so i just <laughs> hung okay back. I, you know i think we have done really good with one of our uh, new year's resolutions but i'm gonna break it today and do you remember what one of our resolutions was regarding the weather T- to not talk about it yeah yeah, I know. We've I love the weather. Six well, today months. Is, today is perfect. Well, what? today it is half the temperature it was two days ago. Yes. So Tuesday. So when we're recording this on a Thursday, on Tuesday in Minneapolis, it got to 103 degrees. We were the hottest place <laughs> in the entire United States. Mm-hmm. Today it's 53. <laughs> and it's 57 you know, out it here. Feels it's 57 chilly. now. Now, but when you know you woke up, it was actually like 50. It was literally half. What? what? Welcome to Mini. <laughs> that makes no sense. Yeah, it's a little crazy. We're in a pretty yeah. whack state for weather. That's all I'm gonna it say. It is whack. And yesterday it was like you know on the downslope between 103 and 53, and it was <laughs> it was like 80, and it felt cold. Because the day before it was like insanely, <laughs> yeah. you know, Death Valley like, whatever. Sorry, I, I think, had to break our streak. Well, we can <laughs> talk about amazing. the weather because it's so interesting around here. I don't think right. it really is interesting. <laughs> well, we can't talk that's about it every podcast, but no, that's true. And we were in a bad rut there. Yeah, because we had the worst winter in the history of man, and then <laughs> we went from seriously like this, like forties and fifties to. 103 in two weeks two days yeah and now we're back down and whatever well we were all like mildly clinically depressed so well, we needed to talk about it <laughs> when you live in minnesota it's hard not to talk about the weather because it's a pretty significant part of your life i mean everything you do revolves around the not that it doesn't elsewhere but i mean if you live in the southern hemisphere and you you know you don't really probably don't factor the weather into your decision making mm-hmm. like you do up here yeah, though, I That's have so to say true. that I would say like four or five years ago, I stopped looking at the forecast. Seriously. I'll look at it for the day that it's in, but I no longer pay attention to two-day, three-day, five-day. I don't even look. <laughs> well, it's so often it's so often so far mm-hmm. off yeah. from what actually happens. That it's just yeah. it's kind of you're setting yourself up for you're like preparing for the worst and then it's beautiful or you're preparing for the beautiful and it's horrible. Yeah. Right? You just never know. That's why you kind of need to look ahead and you need to look at the forecast. Could go up no, to that, the point that's is why that you don't. Yeah. There's you know, no forecast point in leads it. you in the wrong direction. Right. And then, and then, you know, the weather people always argue, well, you know, it's not an exact science, blah, blah, blah. And I'm, and I agree with that. Then don't predict it. I mean, right. I can predict well, the weather too and be right half the time, but and I, I have no background in that. Well, but I want to know, I mean, it's not like some other Southern states where you could pretty much just assume the weekend's going to be pretty even keel. You know, if I want to go up to my cabin this weekend, there might be snow. (laughs) But Jackie, you're missing the point. You're assuming that when you look at the forecast for the weekend, that it's accurate. And what I'm saying is 
you, there's no point in looking at it because, yeah, you can see what they're saying it's going to be, but well, you can't count on it. So why right. bother? I'll take a ballpark. So mm, not me anymore. It's Anywho. nice. It just, it just relieves you of that frustration to Adam's point. <laughs> okay, then. All right. So the first five minutes of this show dedicated to the weather <laughs> brought to you by Minnesota's horrible weather. Busted brought New Year's resolution. <laughs> Once again, the Minnesota tourism board. <laughs> yeah. You like it 103? You like it 53? We got it all. <laughs> yeah. You like 10 feet of snow? Which, by the way, we didn't bring this up in another podcast. There is still snow and ice. Have you yeah, heard this? Is a massive pile of right. snow over in front of the Sears in St. Paul. Right. Is that really waiting. snow, though? Yeah. Well, it's, well, it's, oh, if you look at pictures of it, it's, it's like it's also trash and dirt <laughs> and <laughs> sand and decaying human remains. It's, it's Santa's workshop. <laughs> oh, lovely. I, when I saw pictures of that thing on the news, I, I actually questioned whether or not it was snow as well. I'm, like, I'm guessing there's snow under that pile of trash, but yeah. I don't know. I told it, people. It was disgusting. I told people back in February and March that, given the winter, that there would still be snow and ice somewhere in mm-hmm. June. So it's it's insane that that's still there when we had 103 degrees Tuesday. It's amazing. Can we post a link to that so people we'll can to, see? We'll yeah, have to dig it should, up. There's probably yeah. some YouTube video of that sucker. There was like <laughs> like a mom and her kid like playing in it, like building oh, like gross. snow castle or something. <laughs> I, I bet they're both dead right now. <laughs> Who knows what they were infected with? That's nice. All right. We better get on to something before we lose all of our listenership. (laughs) All right. So uh, first, an update. Don't forget to join us Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, for Building Your Brand with Wellness. That is at 1130 Central Time. There's a link on our show notes. Um, this is brought to you by the Forum for Healthcare Strategists. It features myself, Chris Boyer, Rhonda Mann, some great wellness-based marketing, which by the end of this podcast, we'll have to decide whether we actually go through with the webinar because one of our big topics is all about that. Oh. Yeah. See the connection? <laughs> I do, but our listeners don't. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't. I like keep them in suspended, yeah, suspended animation, suspense. Okay, so that's the only update I think we have. Any other updates? No. Have we mentioned so. the weather? <laughs> yeah, I think we we've covered that one. Okay, so before we get to our big, big, big one, uh, this story appeared in Health Leaders Media, and it's titled "Mayo Clinic Looks to Affiliations to Expand Brand." So basically what this is talking about is uh, the Mayo Clinic is looking to find some affiliates to expand uh, their, I don't know, to expand their presence across the country. Mm -hmm. Um, Right now, of course, there's the Mayo Clinic, which has three locations, Rochester, Minnesota, Jacksonville, Florida, and Scottsdale, Arizona. And then they also have the Mayo Clinic Health System, which is... uh, a network of 19 hospitals uh, throughout Minnesota, Iowa, and Wisconsin, which are owned by the Mayo Clinic, but they're branded individually. So the Mayo Clinic Health System is an endorsing brand of whatever the name of the hospital is. Uh, so they don't they don't have the pure Mayo Clinic brand, and there's a reason for that, uh, which I'll get to in a little bit. But this is more about their their desire to kind of expand and. 
What's interesting is they're not looking to build anything new, acquire any more hospitals or facilities, or merge or consolidate with another health system. They're just looking to partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so all of this is driven by uh, affordable, well, the Affordable Care Act, which is basically health care reform. Uh, and what's interesting is the CEO of the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville had this quote in the article that said, uh, the entire healthcare market is up in the air right now. So I think that says it all. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody knows what the heck to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I think is interesting from this is the brand angle. So later in the article, it says, uh, there will be a vetting process for participation in the affiliated practice network. Quote, we're looking for places that have a similar culture and share the male philosophy or patient care, patient care, unquote, explains Rupp, so the CEO. So there's the brand question right there, right? I mean, the Mayo Clinic, if anybody's going to care about their brand, it's the Mayo Clinic. And so they're, they're going to have to be very, very particular about who they share a name with. Right. Right, in their affiliations. And, and which is why, at least my understanding and what I've read and what I've heard, why the Mayo Clinic Health System, that, 19, that network of 19 hospitals, was never branded just Mayo Clinic, mm-hmm. you know, Mankato, Mayo Clinic, uh, Eau Claire, whatever, wherever the towns are, because there were concerns that those entities didn't quite meet the pure Mayo Clinic brand standard. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm not talking about name there. We're talking about brand, right? The value people give you mm-hmm. uh, in a market. So, uh, boy, don't you think that's going to be tricky for the Mayo Clinic to find folks that are up to their brand standard? I think so. Yeah. But, I mean, there are certainly some amazing organizations out there that would have to, I mean, that meet or exceed that standard, I would think. I mean, Mayo is certainly the poster child for excellence when it comes to healthcare. Um, can you be the poster child for excellence? You can, can't you? I think you can. Why I mean, not? I think post, well, I'm thinking of the derivation of poster. That was my, that was my, uh, personal tagline for a while. What? Adam Meyer, the poster child of excellence. Yes. Somebody in our listenership needs to look up the derivation of poster child. Because, of course, yes, it can be used for positives now. But I think, I would guess originally it was a negative. Like, you're the poster child for dandruff or, <laughs> you know, mean-spiritedness or whatever. Yeah, I think Yeah, I think it was originally, uh, derogatory is not the right word, but, yeah. uh, you know, something on a poster was usually to raise awareness of something. Um, like, so, yeah, somebody has herpes or, like you said, dandruff. So, <laughs> but but I think that's a child, a uh, poster child. It's always been right. poster child, right? Yeah. I think so. Wonder where that came from. Yeah. Where, where, where were there posters uh, of I'm, children? Like missing person missing kids? Let's see. I'm looking it up on Wikipedia. I've got it. A poster child, sometimes a poster boy or poster girl, is a child <laughs> afflicted by some disease or deformity whose picture is used on posters or other media as part of a campaign to raise money or enlist volunteers for a cause. Or organization. Such campaigns may be part of an annual effort or event and may include the name and age of a specific child along with other personal identifiable attributes. Really? Well, that makes but, sense, but I guess I would have yeah, never. 
No, yeah, yeah. And that alternatively, poster child is used in the common vernacular for a person or organization whose attributes or behavior are emblematic of a known cause, movement, circumstance, or ideal. Yeah. Right. Under this usage, the person in question is labeled as an embodiment or archetype. Arch- so th- that archetype. can be positive. Yeah. Right. That right there. It can go either way. Yeah, which I knew that. I just I assumed it started at a negative, and not that a you know a poor kid with dandruff is you know a negative, but it's it's not. You know, you wouldn't want to be associated as you're a sick child with some disease. So no. it's definitely grown beyond that. Anyway, boy, did I throw you off the Anywho. track? Here. Sorry, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> but my point, the point, just being that there certainly are organizations that I mean, there have to be organizations that meet that meet or exceed the standard that Mayo would set. I mean, there are probably organizations out there, even small ones, smaller ones that are, you know, providing arguably better care than the Mayo and whether or not they can have the resources to do the same level of, of like research or have this resources to provide, you know, facilities to that magnitude, probably not, but I would have to believe that there, there are people who would meet, meet the standards and most likely exceed them. I wouldn't think there'd be a ton though. It's hard to say. But there, you're right. There's got to be somebody. Yeah. What was that? Are you okay, Jackie? Yeah. It sounded I like a, ble- a, ble- a bleeding sheep or something. <laughs> I, said, I don't know. <laughs> well, the other thing that I've heard. Um, Bleat, from, and that was bleating, not bleeding. Thank you. I've heard on the street from multiple sources, so I think it's probably true, though I don't know if it's official. Like in the, front of our in, office? In the club? <laughs> yes. The, exactly. the sex world, the sex world and sinners crowd talking about health. Well, I don't know. We'll see when you hear what the, the news is, you'll have to determine, <laughs> but I've heard that the Mayo clinic is looking at branding that network of hospitals, the Mayo clinic health system, um, in more of a unified way. So again, right now the Mayo clinic is definitely a unified brand. The, the Rochester, Jacksonville, um, Arizona, uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, that's, mm-hmm. you know, it's all branded Mayo clinic, with the locations and the, the network of hospitals has its you know, Mayo Clinic health system name that endorses individuals. I've heard that they're looking at unifying all of that. Now, I don't know if it's mm. around uh, just Mayo Clinic or if it's, you know, it would just be Mayo Clinic health system would be the unifying brand for that. I don't know, but interesting. Reminds me a little bit of, uh, I don't know why, but it re- reminds me of Starbucks getting into the instant coffee. Yeah. That's a great, that's <laughs> a great analogy. It's kind of like, well, you are, you are, you embody, you are now the embodiment of greatness when it comes to, well, some would, I think coffee purists would probably slap me for saying that Starbucks embodies coffee greatness. Um, but mainstream, uh, Starbucks is certainly kind of known as the place to get the best coffee. Um, and so when they went into instant coffee, that obviously dilutes that image. So if, yeah, I don't know. Is Mayo diluting their image here, or is it just making their brand more known and more well-respected? Mm-hmm. Well, what's really interesting is there's so many examples of, um, in fact, Starbucks is an example of um, being really cautious about that because they're, they also have a discount brand of uh, coffee. It's not instant coffee. It may have instant coffee in it, but it's Seattle's, I think it's called Seattle's Best. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is branded entirely separately. They even have Seattle's best stores, um, so it's lower cost. Well, that's part of that's that's part yeah. of Starbucks. Yeah, oh, that's part that. of Starbucks, and that's what I mean. Most people don't know that. No, I had no and that's idea. intentional. They don't want people to know that necessarily because hmm. um, it would dilute potentially the Starbucks brand. So it's sure. it's basically a discount 
brand, uh, I just read a story about it somewhere that the it's they put somebody else in charge of it, and it's now it's succeeding financially for them in a way it hadn't before. So uh, it's just an interesting. Yeah, it's a case where unified branding isn't necessarily the best option because you don't want to um, cannibalize, basically in that case, based on price. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on to our big Kahuna, big chewy. We may have to come back to this too because this is just so ripe for discussion. So I'll call it the ethical debate of the day. How do you draw the line between prevention and health education in our business and unnecessarily driving medical care? And this all came to me like in just, it hit me from like three different places in Mm -hmm. one or two days. Um, So there was two stories that I became aware of uh, one of them actually was from early May, but I just didn't find out about it too recently. And it's from the LA Times. Uh, and it's titled, How Much Medical Testing is Too Much? And it's all about the idea that because of advances in technology, uh, primarily we are able to see things that we never could see before. And that's leading to uh, additional care uh, but so often it's unnecessary care. And mm-hmm. what does that mean for our health system overall? And and this article and the other one I'm going to mention is talking all about the preventative side of it. So screenings, tests, that kind of thing. Uh, so it, it starts off by saying uh, midlife brings with it a host of health concerns, the risk of heart disease, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, diabetes, and osteoporosis, to name a few. So as people reach middle age, they're bombarded with an overwhelming number of recommendations for screenings, tests, and to be on the safe side, preventive measures. But patients and doctors alike are reconsidering screenings once thought to be must-haves for everyone, even mammograms and prostate cancer screenings. So it goes on to talk about how uh, they're starting to reconsider some of the standards for like uh, prostate cancer screenings for men. So uh, for example... Up until 2010, the American Cancer Society recommended that all men be screened for prostate cancer at age 50. Mm-hmm. Now it recommends that most men simply talk, this is quoting directly, most men simply talk to their doctors about screening at age 50 uh, or at 45 if men are a higher risk. The task force says there's no good evidence for or against regular screenings for men younger than 75 <laughs> and that men 75 and older should skip it. And it says the cost of prostate screenings in the U.S. is $3 billion a year. And, and the other example that's used over and over is mammographies, um, which cost $5 billion a year. And this, of course, there's a controversy um, that, that was last year when a group came out and said, you know, women really don't need to be getting this as much, and it's costing more than it's worth for the lives that are saved. And people freaked out. We actually talked about that on this podcast. You remember that? You guys remember that? Hello. Mm, which show is that? Seventy-eight. Uh, <laughs> Good guess. <laughs> I don't know. I, I um, vaguely remember it. Yeah. So here's the, here's a quote. Uh, as our technology gets more sensitive and able to see more things, and as we test more often and we change the rules of what's abnormal, we now recognize that we all harbor abnormalities, and our tests are increasingly able to find them said Dr. H. Gilbert Welch, a physician professor at Dartmouth Medical School and author of, quote, undiagnosed, making people sick, or overdiagnosed, making people sick in the pursuit of health. The biggest problem with overdiagnosis is that it triggers overtreatment, adds Welch. It's a side effect of our relentless desire to find disease early. 
Um, mm. And in, a physician later on says, uh, once physicians start down the pathway of looking for disease, quote, you get a lot of unnecessary x-rays and imaging with a lot of exposure to x-rays that probably is more dangerous than any information that you're going to get yeah. from the x-rays. That's stunning. Um, there were some other stunning quotes. <clears throat> well, the other part of this that, that I've talked about before that, that adds to this is we keep changing the ceiling for what is a problem. And I have type 2 diabetes, and I remember um, a few years after I was diagnosed, this was like 10 years ago, they changed what it meant to be pre-diabetic and diabetic. And instantly, there were like millions of more people that were, you know, di- considered diabetic. And it was treated in the news like, look at all the, you know, we must be eating the wrong foods and not exercising. And you're like, well, actually, we just changed the target. So here's an example of that uh, the ceiling for total cholesterol has dropped from 300 to 240 to 200. In other words, what's abnormal? The change from 240 to more than 200 instantly created 42 million new cases, quote unquote, of high cholesterol. How about that? Just mm. changing the target. Now all of a sudden you've got 42 million more people that are like, you know, need to be concerned, even though nothing changed in them from yesterday to today. So that's that's one part of it. And then the other one is a, a Time article, and of course we'll provide links to both of these, called The Screening Dilemma. And I won't read a ton from this. Um, a couple of quotes. If we had 100% sensitive tests, and this is all about cancer, uh, they have a, a huge cancer feature in the latest issue of Time. Uh, but this is a quote about that. If we had 100% sensitive tests that could pick up everything a pathologist would call cancer, it's conceivable that most of us, if not all of us, would be found to have cancer. <laughs> so what they're saying there is as technology moves to that point, you're, you're getting to this societal, cultural question of, uh, you know, we, we've always had all of these things. Do we mm-hmm. really need to treat all of them? The last thing I'll read, and then we can dive into this, because this is where it comes back to you know my webinar on Wednesday and mm-hmm. so much of what we do in our business. Uh, among This is later on in this story. Among all the reasons overscreening is taking place, the least discussed and most disturbing is money. Back in the 1990s, when Brawley, that's one of the people mentioned in this, uh, was an assistant director of the National Cancer Institute. He visited a large research hospital in Atlanta. There, a marketing expert explained that providing free PSA, so that's, um, what is that? What's a PSA? Public service announcement? Yeah. No, it's... Um, oh. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is in medical terminology. <laughs> I'll have to look it up. It's, it's related to the um, prostate exam. That's what it is. Oh. Prostate exam. To 1,000 men at a local mall could lead to millions of dollars in subsequent revenue for the hospital. The income would come from biopsies, surgeries, radiation, even urinary sphincter implants in men who experience complications. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, here's the part that you know you makes you roll your eyes. This kind of strategy is common, according to Brawley. So on one hand, here, once again, you have people that don't understand the business of healthcare kind of uncovering this like it's this seedy underbelly, like, oh, my God, I can't believe this exists. For us... And all the people listening to this podcast, this is what we do every day. Mm -hmm. That's our job, is to come up with better ways to do exactly what's described there. So there is the ethical debate. Right. How do we balance what we are driven to do, what is successful 
to reach our goals from a marketing perspective, which is, you know, wellness campaigns, prevention. How do we balance that with this idea that uh, we are potentially driving up unnecessary care, unnecessary cost, uh, and in many cases, according to these articles, causing more harm than good mm-hmm. uh, because so many people are diagnosed wrongly or they're overdiagnosed and they're treated when they don't need to be treated, even when things are found. It's a, That's a toughie. <laughs> that is a huge issue. <laughs> yeah, it is. And That's a complicated a- answer. I mean, and there, man, I don't know. I mean, and, you know, one person's answer, especially depending on politically, maybe which way you lean is going to be drastically different than somebody else or even like religiously, which way you lean, you know, it's, it's, man, that is a, it's a question that doesn't really have, it doesn't have an answer. Right. I mean, it has a lot of answers. Let's put it that way. It's like a two hour podcast ethical debate. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll call this part one. Cause I think we can, it'd be great to get some talk to some people and come back with part two. So sure. and we're not gonna be able to cover it all on this one, but I think it's worth it. I mean, I think it's fair for, let me speak for you guys and get your approval or denial. This stuff matters to us. I mean, I, I don't want to sound preachy and, you know, gooey and whatever, but, uh, you know, we all want to be doing things that we believe in, not just from right. a business perspective, like what we do helps our clients. Uh, but we want to believe that what we're doing uh, helps the greater good. I mean, it's not the reason to be in business for, it doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be why we're all working at a firm like this. But I think it's fair to say none of us want to be part of the problem. Right. Yeah, right. Totally. Yeah. Well, and without naming names, I mean, we've, we've, you know, struggled over content we've received, you know, over the last year, ways that people wanted to word things or, um, you know, set things up in advertising or other communications and, and we, I don't, you know, individually, I think we've, we've raised the question of like, is this, is this ethical? You know, have we, is this, is this the right way to, to drive business or is this the right way to set up this new, this new service or offering? Um, and because of these very things, it's like, you know, do and sometimes it almost comes, it almost feels like a, there's an element of fear mongering where you, mm-hmm. you know, you, you make people so afraid that they feel they need all of these tests. Um, and, yeah, it's 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 tricky. Well, and that brings you know. I think we talked about this before, but maybe not on the podcast. Shushman, the Society for Healthcare Strategy and Market Development, has uh, basically an ethics guideline document mm-hmm. called "Principles and Practices for Marketing Communications in Hospitals and Health Systems." And under one section, it's called "Other Ethical Considerations," and it says the use of tactics that induce fear or promote the use of excessive or unnecessary healthcare services is unethical. And so that fits with, you know, I think we agree with that. But it's it's a gray area. So to use your example, Adam, um, you know, we've promoted things like osteoporosis uh, or or um, prostate or colorectal. Col- we talked about colorectal sc- screenings last week. Mm-hmm. With that, what's up your butt campaign? So, you know, both of those, or even breast cancer, um, in all three cases, you may not present any symptoms. All right? right. So, so as far as you know, you're fine. And to to get people to pay attention to the problem, you have to say, look, this is something that you could have and not even know it. Right. You should be screened for it. Well, is that fear-mongering? Is that unethical? Uh, or is that, you know, educating a public about... Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's very tough. I mean, if, you, if you're not sick, if you're not... I mean, 
I just tend to think that the, it's it's definitely not black and white, right? Oh, not at all. And and I think there's a few ways to think about. Well, how do we sleep at night, right? I mean, I, I, in the end, that's kind of the ethics question. And um, for one, so let's take um, mammography, promoting mammography is you know because that's used in both the examples in these stories. Uh, if we're running a campaign to try to drive women in, uh, let's say at age 50 or 40 or whatever the regulation is now to get a mammography, um, I don't know that that's unethical. What's unethical would be, uh, for people to come in and be driven through screenings, assessments, tests, surgery, treatment unnecessarily. Right, so a lot of this is dependent on our clients, you, you folks out there who work for hospitals and health systems, being ethical in what you do with the folks who come in, right? And yeah, not being and- driven by money, <clears throat> not being driven by you know internal business goals, but you know still kind of fulfilling the Hippocratic oath of hey, we're only going to we're, we're going to treat this in a reasonable way, whatever your results are. Yeah, and I think it, but I think it also definitely there's a component of it too that you have to think about before they come in. You know how how are you are you how are you driving? Like we just talked about, you know, are you are you putting messages out there that are based on fear? Um, yeah, that maybe you're not looking at them as being fear based. Um, you know, it's just it's in the eye of the beholder too. You know, you put something out there that you don't think is fear based, yet somebody else reads it and scares the you know, bejesus out of them and they feel like they need to come in for every test under the sun. Right. So it, it def, there's definitely a component in both ways. I mean, it's especially better be ethical once you've got somebody in. Um, but that really, at that point, it's kind of out of the hands of the marketers and more in right. the hands of the caregivers. Um, our responsibility, I think is to be ethical in getting people to, to utilize, you know, our services. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think one suggestion would be, you know, we talked so much recently over the past year about health and wellness and preventative um, messaging and content being a fantastic way to engage your community and your audience. And and I still think that holds true. Uh, But I think those messages and that content needs to be balanced with um, appropriate advice and the wisdom of you know, who needs the tests and who needs the screenings. And it's one thing to try to get people to be healthy, to exercise, to diet, and to provide services for that. Right. Uh, it's another to uh, unnecessarily drive people in for heart screenings that don't need it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think, you know, you have, I-, I think that there's a benefit in uh, hospitals and health systems being upfront with that. Uh, I think people would respect it. And the example we talked about before the podcast was, uh, you know, I've had the same auto mechanic for, geez, I don't even know, 15 years, 16 years. And the reason I stick with them is because I, I would guess half the time, okay, maybe that's an exaggeration, a third to half the time I come in thinking I have a problem, he tells me, no, I don't. <clears throat> no, mm-hmm. you don't need new tires yet. You got another year. Come back to me in a year. No, you don't need your brakes fixed. That means I just trust him inherently because he's doing what's best for me, not what's best for his, you know, cash register. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and I think that's the the side of of building an integrity and ethics into your messaging uh, and how you deliver care that actually will resonate with people. Right. Yeah. And you know, I I can use from personal experience having a child and having been in urgent care a few times for, you know, whether it's. Uh, 
you know, ear infections or whatever your, your, your child is some seems like something's wrong and you have no idea. Um, and one of the physicians that we had, had, had uh, have seen, um, was just really frank about ear infections. He's like, you know, most of the time that's not what it is. Um, even if it is an ear infection, you know, children are pretty well equipped to get over them on their own without antibiotics. Um, I don't know. He was just honest and frank. And he was like, you know, you, you you might want to pick up uh, an otoscope. At least I think that's what it's called. The mm-hmm. tool to look into your ear and keep that at home. And this is what you should look for. Um, so he was just very honest about, you know, you don't, you don't need to freak out and come in here, you know, if you think it's an ear infection, cause it, it may be, but it may not be. And if it is, it's not necessarily the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, I don't know, it's that kind of honesty. It, I, I equate that to this, you know, the, your, your example with the, with the mechanic, um, you know, just helping you get over that element of fear to, to be like, you know, this is, this is part of life. Right. Right. So, um, you know, here's maybe a nice springboard for the next part of the discussion. We don't have to get into it because this could be deep too. But, um, you know, again, if we all just kind of sing Kumbaya and, you know, roses grow in the sunshine, maybe healthcare reform will help solve a big part of this because reform is supposed to be taking us away from the idea of you get paid for quantity mm-hmm. to you get paid for quality. Mm-hmm. And if that really takes hold, then there won't be the financial incentive for systems to try to drive people through for more screenings that, you know, for more consultations, for more surgeries. They will only want to do that if it's really necessary, because those things then will add up to, um, you know, costs that, that they don't want to incur. So if it's really about keeping people healthier, you would hope that that would drive providers to only conduct tests and, and deliver care when it's necessary and when it's appropriate because they're not incented financially uh, and or to Adam, your point earlier, um, they're not worried about malpractice uh, Mm -hmm. and boy, I better run a bunch of tests because I'm going to get sued. If you know, it's maybe it's one in 5,000 chance that there's cancer here, but if I don't run these tests and it is cancer, I'm getting sued. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so those are the kind of things that hopefully reform. uh, And I don't know where, how reform addresses malpractice, but um, who knows? Maybe that will help with all of this. We shall see. We shall see. We shall see. Hey, what was that Brady Bunch episode with Peter? Uh, Pork chops and applesauce. <laughs> Gee, isn't that swell? The only one I even remotely remember is the one with the spider in the beach bag. Oh, that was awesome with the tiki doll because they. Yeah through the tiki doll or they lost it or whatever, or they uncovered it in their construction. Cause Mike was there to oversee the construction of something. <laughs> Jeez, I don't remember that much of it. But. Oh, I could, I could probably tell <laughs> wow. you the plot of every Brady bunch episode. <laughs> the one I was mentioning is where Peter is. He's, he's like in puberty and he's, he's not sure who he is. He's a middle kid. He doesn't know what his identity is. So he starts taking other people's identity, like trying him out. So that was his, he was trying to be Humphrey Bogart. Oh, I thought you meant he was like stealing their social hey, security Ma, numbers. Hey, what are we having for dinner? Taking Pork their credit cards. and applesauce. <laughs> Gee, isn't that swell? <laughs> anyway, we better go. We're like way over time. Yeah, we're a little over. All right, we'll just cut all that part out about the weather at the beginning. We'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. All right, so for healthcare, no, what are we? Arrogant. We're arrogant. I forgot the arrogant part. Quite. For Arrogant Healthcare Marketing Bastards podcast, this is Chris Bevelo, Jackie Rotaco, and Adam Meyer. Thanks for hanging in there, and we will talk to you next time. 
Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Interval Chris. At AP Meyer. At Interval Jackie, I think. <laughs> and come to our website, sign up for e newsletter. Uh, you can find that right on the homepage. Yep. Talk to you soon. See ya. Bye.